And please open your Bibles to page uh, 947. Uh, we'll be reading the, um, Romans, the whole chapter of Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thank you, Sam, and let me add my welcome to Chalmers this evening. Please do keep that page of the Bible open. It will help, me, help us, hopefully both, a lot if you've got page 947 open in front of you. Someone, just before we pray, someone uh, said to me earlier, where's Joseph? Um, and if you're thinking that, this is just a one-off. We're doing a one-off in Romans 12, and then we'll be back to Genesis 39 uh, next week. Let me pray, and I'll explain what we've got to look forward to tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, as we've sung, we pray that you would speak. And we pray that your speaking would grow us as worshippers of the true and living God in this particular church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, as I said, we are pausing um, our Genesis 
series. There's a kind of practical reason for that. Um, I was speaking on a weekend last weekend and then on a conference all week, so I wouldn't have done Genesis 39 any justice. Um, But actually, I'm really glad to be speaking on this topic. I think it's actually quite an important topic for us in Romans 12. It's important and it's regularly misunderstood. Our topic tonight is worship. Worship. Let me read verse 1 again to show you that. 12 verse 1. This is the kind of heading for our passage on page 947. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's the umbrella command. Worship, as Sam's been saying, true worship, spiritual worship. What does good worship look like? Sometimes when you're um, chatting to people, deciding which church to settle in, Sometimes they'll say right at the top of their criteria is, I want somewhere with good worship. What is good worship? I wonder what kind of worship you would think of as good. Perhaps for some it would be the kind of thriving contemporary Christian rock, the kind of thriving, driving drums, bass, guitars, the congregation who are really getting into it. Maybe that's what spiritual worship is all about, the eyes closed singing a new song from the heart. Others with a more kind of classical bent may be thinking, well, hang on, for the holy, awesome, eternal God, you don't want the loud, crashy sounds of kind of pop and rock. You want the sophisticated, serious, encultured strains of kind of orchestral instruments, choral singing, ancient hymns for a holy God. Others still might, might think that It's unaccompanied singing, perhaps singing of only psalms. And no doubt, it's a wonderful thing, a hugely encouraging thing to hear God's people in full corporate voice singing the very words of Scripture. Surely that's true worship, spiritual worship. Actually, we're going to see tonight that all of that is kind of missing the point. Don't get me wrong, the area of corporate singing and how we use music in church is an important area. Um, it's very much actually on my mind and heart at the moment. We're, we're just beginning as elders to, to uh, think about this as we review and plan for, for next year. How can music in this church family best serve the word of Christ dwelling richly in us? It is an important area, music. But I wonder if you notice that in the whole of Romans 12, music isn't mentioned. Here's a chapter about spiritual worship without a single mention of singing. One of the sad things about uh, the use of music in church is that that great gift of music can sometimes be an area of real friction, can be an area of kind of discord in a church family. I think because there are always different preferences as to what kind of music we want. But actually, we should all be able to agree on what good worship looks like. And Romans 12 will help us. You see, the answer to what worship God wants, if we start, rather than the question of kind of what, what worship do I like, if we start with the question, what kind of worship does God like, well, it turns out music is not the center of that. 
The kind of worship God wants is far, 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 far bigger than music. It's actually far bigger than anything, everything we do on a Sunday together. I want you to imagine, if we, if we were to put a picture on the, this big screen up there of a worshipper, what would you picture? Well, Romans 12 is going to say to us, don't take a picture of someone singing in church. No, follow them back home. Take the camera into the office or the school or their neighborhood. Worship isn't just what we do when we're together. It's everything we do outside as well. So you'll see on the, the um, back of the service sheet, there's, a, there's an outline of where we're going. And this is our first big point. True God-pleasing worship is a whole life response to his gospel grace. True God-pleasing worship is a whole life response to his gospel grace. Now, there's a lot packed into that, so let me just um, try and unpack it a bit in verses 1 and 2. So verse 1, firstly, it's the whole of life. Let me read it again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some of that language is taken from the kind of temple worship, where you present something, maybe your your grain offering or your... um, or your goat or your pigeon, present something to God as an offering, a gift of gratitude often. But notice here, it's not something I own, verse 1, it's something I am. Rather, it's everything I am. Present your bodies, every part of me, all the time as a living sacrifice. So it's a whole life response. Uh, to God's mercies. And it really is a response. Uh, I'm about to say something, which please tune in, because uh, if this, this next two minutes, if it doesn't register, the rest of the sermon could be dangerous. So please listen. These two minutes really matter. All the commands in Romans 12 are a response to God's grace, God's mercy, God's good news of Jesus Christ. This is the risk of diving straight into Romans 12. I mean, I know we did uh, some of the early chapters of Romans about a year and a half ago, but I've learned that most people don't remember my sermon from last week, let alone kind of 18 months. Um, uh, and and the, whole, the, the letter has been building to this point where we've seen so much of what God's done for us in Jesus, and now this is the response to it. So if you're not a Christian here, let me be really clear on this. The instructions we're going to see about worship are not how we earn God's favor. They are a response to already having God's favor through Jesus. This is not the entry price to God's people. It's the expression of thanks and the reality of being God's people by grace in Jesus. So look again at the start of verse 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, as in therefore given the first 11 chapters of good news. I appeal to you on the basis of that, brothers and sisters, and then, in case you missed it, by the mercies of God to present your bodies. Notice from verse 2 that this new way of living will involve living differently from the world around. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
if you're around this morning, in, in our 1 Corinthians series, great book, 1 Corinthians, and this wouldn't surprise you that, that God's wisdom in the Bible is very different to the, the wisdom in the culture around us. It's cross-centered. It's based on the gospel of how God has treated us. And that stuff about discerning God's will is talking about taking those big gospel truths of Romans 1 to 11 or of 1 Corinthians 1 to and applying them to the nitty-gritty complexities of daily life. That's a collective task as we chat to each other about how to do it. But here's the, this is, let me summarize, the big opening headline. True God-pleasing worship is a whole life response to his gospel grace. So it is 24-7 as we live and eat and sleep and work and talk and buy Drink drinks, we're to do it all in worship to God. When are our worship services as a church, a Chalmers church family? Well, we have some gathered ones here on a Sunday. Actually, our worship service continues as we walk out the door. And it's all a response to God's mercies. Let me give us a, a brief reminder of God's mercies in Romans. Don't worry, I'm not going to do kind of 11 chapters blow by blow, but let me just remind us of how good God has been in, in the gospel. So the gospel according to Romans, what is it? Well, the book started with Paul showing us that every human being, so whether Jew or non-Jew, whether religious or non-religious, whether wildly immoral or seemingly upstanding, every human being has rejected God. No, I haven't. Someone says, I'm an agnostic. But here's the thing. God has given everyone a, a sense of right and wrong, whether they read the Bible or not, whether they believe in God or not. And actually, he's put everyone in a world that shows he's there, whether we acknowledge it or not. And all of us suppress that truth, that there is a creator out there, that there is right and wrong, even in my heart. We all suppress the truth, and instead of worshipping truly our real creator, we turn to worship other things, things of our own choosing, things inside the world he made, gods of our own making. Which means none of us even live up to our standards of right and wrong, let alone God's ones. Romans puts it like this, no one's righteous, not even one. No one living on the planet currently has the right to stand before God and truthfully say, I deserve life because I'm a true worshipper of you. Now, we like to convince ourselves we're not that bad because we can find examples of other people who are worse but God's not interested in our relative performance with other human beings. He's interested in our, um, our living relative to him, to his perfection. And so we're all in desperate trouble, says the early chapters of Romans. No one's righteous, not even one. But there was one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, stepping into our shoes as humanity, who did live the perfect life that we should and died the death we deserve. He substituted into our place. And that is the huge mercy 
that 12 verse 1 is talking about. That we, did, we don't, as Christians, face the death we deserve, but instead receive the life he deserves. We're adopted as God's children. We're empowered by God's Spirit. We're shown undeserved kindness. And if we haven't got some of that in our heads, the rest of this chapter is going to feel very strange, very hard. It's only in view of God's amazing grace to us, his mercies to us, that we can even begin to show the kind of love that we're going to go on and see. And so chapter 12 starts, In view of those mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, Monday to Friday, as well as the weekend. Time for point two. And actually, we shouldn't be surprised where point two goes. So from verses three to five, Paul turns to talk about thinking rightly about ourselves. Given that extraordinary grace of Jesus stepping into my shoes, taking the death I deserve, living the life I should have, I wonder how I should think about myself. How should you think about yourself if you're a Christian? Well, verse 3. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. A proud Christian should be impossible. It's an oxymoron. How can I be proud when I know that I was saved from a deserved judgment by God's undeserved grace. Paul, as we saw in Acts last term, he of all people knew that. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. How could a Christian who understands the gospel be proud? Just look at the authority that, in verse 3, Paul appeals to. Not kind of because I'm an apostle, by the authority given to me in Christ. No, verse 3, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you. It shouldn't be the case that Christians are proud, but it does happen. It happens a lot. Funny enough, it even happens that we can be proud of how well we understand the gospel. It's pretty ironic, isn't it? I was... I was actually repenting this week, um, just freshly conscious of my pride. It's extraordinary, isn't it, that I could be proud of, of being doctrinally sound or of sticking to the real gospel when so many other people wander away or whatever. But doesn't that gospel humble me and you? Think rightly about ourselves. By the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think more of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment. Part of spiritual worship is to have a right gospel-shaped humility about myself. And of course, right humility, it, thinking rightly about myself, it, it's not just in relation to God and to the gospel. It is in relation to each other as church family. Worship involves serving and loving other people. That's where the rest of chapter 12 is going to go. And I wonder if the reason Paul starts 
telling us we need to consider ourselves soberly is because that's often the blockage that stops us serving others. Actually, whether we have too high a view of ourselves or too low a view of ourselves in the gospel, this can be the blockage in how we relate to others. In the city of London, um, it was always fascinating when I was sitting in a foyer of, a, of an office waiting to meet someone. Um, you could tell who the people were who were at the top end of the pay scale or the power scale as they walked through the lobby. It's always interesting to see how a senior partner relates to a doorman or a cleaner compared to another partner who might get a conversation. And it was a glorious thing. I'd sometimes see someone I knew, a Christian uh, in the office, coming through. It was glorious to see how distinctive Christians can be here. Genuine time for a whole range of people. That's what church should feel like. Full of people who themselves know what it's like to be treated better than their rank or status or performance. And so treat others, whoever they are, well. It is just possible sometimes in church life to think some jobs are beneath me. Maybe even some people are beneath me. Do I have to be nice to that person? He's not really my type. Do I have to go the extra mile for that one? They drive me mad. (laughs) No thanks, Paul. If that's what you call worship, I'd rather just sing my heart out for an hour on a Sunday. At least I can stop that and, and kind of go home. Here's an exercise to, to, to kind of sober up our judgment. Um, I know we're too polite to do this, really, but just humor me. If you were going to divide the Chalmers congregation into kind of real somebodies over here and real kind of nobodies over here, somebodies would be the people who really contribute, the kind of the, those folks who add value, make a big difference. Maybe we'll put them over there on display in that open transept. Um, Who might it be? Is it the people up front, musicians, leaders, preachers? Is it those who are particularly gifted, the the catering, hospitality, administration, children's work? Is it those with the money, the kind of big money, who help fund gospel work? They're the somebodies. Who would you put, I don't know, out in the foyer maybe, the nobodies? The first-timer? Don't know if they're going to settle... Someone you find it really hard to talk to, a really needy person, a a fringe person who only comes in frequently. I don't know who it would be. Where would you put yourself? That's really the question. Where would you put yourself? If no one else was watching, if you had a choice of where to walk, where would you put yourself? It's funny. Whether we think, oh, I'm a somebody, I shouldn't have to serve these folk, or whether we think I'm a nobody, I've got no part to play. Actually, we were both wrong, and both people won't serve properly. Both are wrong because actually, verse 4, we're all part bodies. Not somebodies, not nobodies, but part bodies, body parts. Look at verse 4. As in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function... So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of each other. So if you are a Christian here tonight, you are a part body of Chalmers, interconnected 
with the rest of us. Another translation puts it like this. We belong to each other. A closer tie than friendship or business partnership or sports club. Interlinked, interdependent, mutually necessary part bodies. So, um, just have a look for a moment at my ankle. Can you see my ankle? I think you can. That's as high as I can go. I'm not, I'm not flexible. Um, that ankle is connected to my leg. It's just part of my body. It, it really is a fixed part of my body. I need it. Um, it. It's not just kind of blood ties. It's all sorts of things holding it in there. And I'm very reliant upon it. Think of yourself as an ankle or whatever part of the body you'd prefer to be. I think that's obvious in a really small church or perhaps the, the Redeemer launch team as you look around and think, oh, we really need each other here. Easy in a larger church family like Chalmers to think, well, maybe I'm not particularly needed. Maybe it doesn't make a real difference whether I'm there on a particular Sunday or not, whether I serve or not, whether I'm involved midweek or not. But God couldn't agree less with that attitude. God thinks we're part bodies. Members of each other. We need each other. And so, verses 6 to 8 move on to the importance of using our gifts for each other. I hope you can see the kind of flow of thought that's building. God, in in view of his great mercies, he wants us to worship him 24-7. What will that involve? Well, a right view of myself in the gospel. Not thinking too highly or too lowly of myself which then will lead to serving the rest of the church family of which I'm part. This view of worship that we're about to see couldn't be further from what I thought as a Christian teenager. I used to uh, close my eyes and do my best to forget other people when I was singing. Paul says it's completely the opposite. True spiritual worship involves opening our eyes and remembering people around us. Central to worshipping God spiritually is loving people. And actually, even the books in the New Testament that explicitly mention singing, Colossians, Ephesians, as we saw last um, term, we even then put it in the context of loving God's people. So, true spiritual worship involves coffees, casseroles, car lending, crying. Worship that God loves looks like serving soup to people or phoning a Christian friend to see how they're doing or coming back from a weekend away to make it to church or moving a washing machine or holding tissues, holding a hand, not making a snide joke, praying for people. It's just daily life filled with daily love. That's what God's looking for in spiritual worship. So then, point three, verses six to eight. Actively using our gifts to serve the body. God-pleasing worship involves actively using our gifts to serve the body. Now, when we get a list of gifts, like the one in verse six onwards, uh, it can cause confusion if we kind of miss Paul's basic point, which is actually a very simple gift. It's this. Whatever your gift, whether it's one of these specific ones he mentions or a different one, get on and use it for others. So verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. 
And then that pattern carries on, verse 7. If service in our serving, the one teaching in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Just get on and use your gifts. You're a part body needed, so use your gifts for others. This clearly isn't an exhaustive list of all the areas of service needed in church. There are, there are gifts mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament that aren't mentioned here. So don't panic if, if you think, I'm not sure which of these gifts I am. But actually, lots of them are quite general, aren't they? I mean, there are quite specific things, Bible-based ministry like teaching or prophecy, um, but, but actually some of them are very general. Contributing, giving generously. Service, verse 7. Acts of mercy, verse 8. Notice they're gifts given by God, not something we take the credit for, and they do differ. Again, not to compare ourselves to one another, not drawing up a mental scoreboard uh, to think my gifts are anything other than a sign of God's undeserved kindness to me. But it's a great thing to reflect. Often it helps with others around us, perhaps a small group um, could help with this. Reflect what opportunities, abilities, resources, strengths and capacities has God given me and how could I use them to serve the needs of the church? Because using our gifts is not a kind of optional extra, according to Paul. We're all part bodies. So I showed you my right ankle earlier. Here it is again. There's my right ankle. I actually only really noticed my ankle for the first time seriously when I damaged it. Um, I was playing football and twisted it a bit. Uh, and I never noticed it until it stopped doing its job properly. Um, it's actually not... Uh, in football, I'm quite one-sided. My left foot actually is where the action happens. That's where I score goals and kick the ball and stuff. Turns out, though, I do actually have to stand on my right ankle to kick with the left. And once my right ankle was weak and twisted, I discovered I couldn't score goals anymore, couldn't really kick the ball properly. Paul says, don't be a dodgy ankle in any particular church family. You may not be flashy. You may not be the left foot that kind of everyone sees. Oh, wow, look, kick the ball. But actually, you are needed, deeply needed. You have a part to play to get on and use your gifts. One book, a Christian book on church, puts it like this. The church is a ship with no passengers, only crew. So, if we want to worship God rightly, we think rightly about ourselves, and we actively use our gifts to serve the body Actually, God doesn't just want his, his family, his church, full of activity, full of service. Fundamentally, he wants us full of love. This is our final point, verses 9 to 21. Verse 9 has the basic point. Let love be genuine. And the rest of the passage is going to spell out what that means in practice. I put some subpoints down there, but really, Paul just kind of mixes up lots of Lots of commands, kind of staccato commands over a whole range of aspects of love. Which I think is kind of the point. <clears throat> Genuine love is not limited. You can't just box it into neat categories. Genuine love operates to all kinds of people at all times, all sorts of situations. That's the way to truly worship God. It's actually been a huge encouragement to uh, Jesse and I to just experience what a loving community Chalmers is. I wonder if anyone else who's kind of 
fairly new to the church family has, has found that. We certainly have. Just hugely appreciate how well we're loved in prayer, in practical help, in conversation where there's real concern, not just going through the motions, people speaking truth to us, encouragement. And so as we go through these verses, I'm not, not approaching them with, as a kind of beat-up, but rather a kind of spur to just keep going, keep growing in love. And not just to newcomers like us or needy people like we are, but actually to everyone, not just to the obvious, but all around us. And hopefully some of these uh, reminders will help with that. So what does genuine love look like? We're not going to cover every verse, but hopefully this will give us a flavor. Verses 10 to 12, I think genuine love is um, it's kind of genuine and enthusiastic, maybe even passionate, or to put it neg- negatively and maybe risk offending some of us, maybe all, many of us, genuine love goes beyond kind of polite British love. Actually, when, when I arrived in Scotland, someone said to me that... Um, Edinburgh is a bit more reserved than Glasgow. I don't know if that's true. I I don't want to get into hot water. But genuine Christian love pushes beyond the kind of, well, that's just their life, and I've got my own front door, and I live behind it. Pushes beyond that kind of national reserve that lots of British people have that says, go easy now. Keep people at arm's length. Look at what Paul says. Love, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Paul says, be zealous. Love with brotherly affection. Real family love. Not the kind of family love at a Christmas with that boring cousin you only ever see kind of once in the blue moon. You just have to endure it with that quiet resignation. No, this is affection. Brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. But of course, enthusiastic flashes in the pan are good for nothing unless there's long-term, ongoing commitment. In fact, actually, love that kind of starts passionately and then kind of gives up after a week or two, a welcome that's extraordinarily warm and then forgets, uh, well, that can be even more painful as people are let down. Paul says, genuine love, genuine and lasting. And genuine love will be through downs as well as up. Verses 13 to 16. Life in church is often tough, isn't it? You get that sense in verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation be constant in prayer. As we think of our gospel partners around the world, bless those who persecute you, bless them, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Through downs as well as ups. Genuine love, it's not that kind of city networking love. You know the kind of love where you just look out for the movers and the shakers. You don't really have time to weep with the weepers. 
Networking love goes to dinner with the people who matter, who are fun, who might get you somewhere. But verse 16, genuine love associates with the lowly. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. It's a wonderful thing about the quality of love available that should be available in a church family. It doesn't matter if someone's going to scratch your back down the line, if they've got something to offer or not, if they'll ever be able to pay you back or not. Genuine love just cares, whatever someone's background, through downs as well as ups, weeping with those who weep, those who are struggling with signalness, dealing with broken engagements, and rejoicing with those who rejoice, love through downs as well as ups. That's not easy, it's costly. Actually, verses 17 to 21 get even harder. (laughs) Let me read. Let me read from verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for so by, de- for, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The quality of love by the end of the chapter is absolutely extraordinary. It's not just loving people inside the church, it's loving people outside the church. It's not just loving people who treat you well, it's loving people who treat you badly. It's one of the most extraordinary witnesses to the power of the gospel that in a, in a context where Christians are being bullied or intimidated or even attacked violently, that they can show love back. Trusting, verse 19, that God will do justice in the end. One writer puts it like this to try and show how shocking it is. Let me read. This verse means expressing love to people no matter what they do to you. He carries on. If that last sentence didn't strike you, worry you, and challenge you, read it again. I'll read it again. This means expressing love to people no matter what they do to you, which is so counterintuitive, isn't it? It'd be a good thing to talk about who do we find it hard to love. I don't know if some of us at the moment in our workplaces are being wronged, slighted, or unjust treatments. Well, part of worshipping the living God is to show love. Verse 20, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. At this point, we've, we've pushed beyond kind of British love into someone else's home. We've pushed beyond networking love into the homes of people who won't give anything back. I mean, this kind of love, it's not, it's not even human, is it? It's not human love. It's far beyond human love. All human love has limits. We always draw a line somewhere. But Paul says there is nowhere a Christian can draw the line. Yes, we can't always be at peace. Verse 18 is very um, realistic about that. But we're never to cause or contribute to conflict. We're never to retaliate 
enemies as well as friends. It's time to close. I wonder how all those commands have left you feeling. If you're anything like me, slightly reeling. How can I fall short of so many commands in one paragraph? Or maybe two paragraphs. I thought I was a loving guy. And maybe by the standards of British love or kind of network love or human love, I might be. But genuine love, the love that, that is spiritual worship to God, it's so much more. Well, let me just say, if you are feeling slightly despairing, like I was reflecting on this passage, remember we do all this in view of the mercies of God. Why is this kind of love, the outflow of being gripped by the gospel? Because this is exactly the love God has shown us. Let's have a think about that. If you're a Christian... While you were still an enemy, God set his love upon you. The Lord Jesus didn't just look after number one. He laid down his life to buy you back. And he used everything he was in zealous, persevering love to bring you home. It's in view of those mercies and those continuing mercies as he continues to forgive us our failure. In view of those mercies, we can rightly think about ourselves, recipients of gracious love, and show the same kind of undeserved love to one another. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus that grows a loving church like this. And I pray whatever happens with our music, that this kind of true spiritual worship will be what characterized this church family and the Redeemer church family for many, many years to come. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you that while we were still sinners, you loved us. You sent your Son to die for us, and you sent your spirit into our hearts that we might cry, Abba, Father, as your adopted children. And so we pray so much that you would help us by your spirit to keep growing in love. We thank and praise you for all the ways in which this church family is full of love. And we pray that would be the case more and more for your glory and for the worship of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.